to another episode of the William Branham Historical Research Podcast. I'm your host, John Collins, the author and founder of William Branham Historical Research at william-branham.org. And with me, I have my co-host, researcher, minister, and friend, Charles Paisley, the founder of christiangospelchurch.org. And together, we're examining the history and the intersections in history between William Branham and other key figures that either influenced or were influenced by the post-World War II healing revivals. Charles, usually I wait until the very last part of the episode to drop the really explosive bombs on this podcast, but we have something that is so significant that just happened that we actually should probably get that out of the way so that it's not a distraction for the rest of this show because it is really significant. And by the time that this podcast airs, it will have already hit our blog. But um, last week after talking with Bernie Wade and at the same time one of the other podcasts has aired, which has a key fact that was more significant than we realized when we recorded the podcast, we um, came across some new information and study that's worth mentioning. There was a little tiny newspaper advertisement, and yes, you're holding it up right now, the Reverend Kurtz of Cincinnati, Ohio. And it's pre- he's preaching at the Branham Pentecostal Tabernacle, and that is the tabernacle on Pratt Street, not the tabernacle on Penn Street. On August 15th, 1934. August 15th. The date is actually of key significance. We aired the podcast, and some Pentecostal historians noticed that name and that date. And it literally is the unraveling of William Branham's entire life story. Because, remember, he was supposed to be a Baptist minister. He claimed that he had quote, never seen a Pentecostal before when he went on an accidental trip to Mishawaka and he spoke at, just happened to stumble onto the General Pentecostal Assembly, one of the biggest Pentecostal meetings of that year in the area that he stumbled onto. Well, this Reverend Kurtz, it turns out, was a very famous Pentecostal minister one of basically one of the founding ministers of Pentecostalism today. And he was in collaboration with G.B. Rao at the church in Meshawaka where this big event was held. And that big event, the one that William Branham, you know, claims to have stumbled onto, that big event happened just a couple weeks after that, after Reverend Kurtz came to the tabernacle and preached before his Pentecostal church is even built. It just serves to further debunk um, the story that William Branham told us about his start in ministry. You know, as we've known for quite some time, William Branham was actually a Pentecostal from the 1920s. Um, and he was certainly moving in Pentecostal circles. He was certainly in a Pentecostal church of Roy Davis. Roy Davis's church baptized in Jesus' name. They practiced divine healing. They, uh, you know, believed in the oneness of the Godhead. They um, pro- practiced speaking in tongues, Holy Ghost religion. William Branham had been in a thoroughly oneness Pentecostal church uh, since at least the late 20s. And what this confirms to us is that... Pr- 
opposite to what he told us, he had prominent oneness Pentecostal preachers come to the Branham Tabernacle, right, even before the meetings when he went to Mishawaka uh, and claimed to meet Pentecostals for the first time, you know, in, in all of the literature God's generals, everything, even the scholarly uh, biographies, you know, um, put him as a Baptist minister with no contact to Pentecostalism at this point. But the truth is, William Branham was connected to preeminent Pentecostal ministers from the very earliest days of his ministry. He was a Pentecostal from day one. Right, and it's so significant if you think about it, because you know, his trip to Lake Pawpaw, for instance, which was just happens to be one of the lake resorts where Pentecostal assemblies were gathered. Um, you know, according to the people, the historians that we've spoken with, William Branham didn't just stumble onto this. He's already connected to these men. He's literally, he's already a Pentecostal holding Pentecostal revivals in a tent before the church was built. So, it's, it's very important to understand that fact as we get into this episode, which is why I wanted to bring it, you know, to the front of the episode, because you have to understand what was going on in the time, you know, what, what was actually happening within Pentecostalism, but also within just general Indiana history. So I'm really excited to get into this episode because... I feel, you know, as a historian, as a person who loves history, I feel as though this is one of the topics that uh, is so exciting just to understand. We're talking about, um, you know, the history of Indiana, what was going on in the time, the culture of Indiana. We're talking about the, you know, basically the background to what was happening during the time that William Branham was claiming to be a Baptist, you know, but he was actually a Pentecostal. Yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting, uh, that period of time in William Branham's ministry uh, and life. Uh, a, a lot of times, um, we miss a lot of historical context because, you know, we didn't live through that time. So, we, you know, we just don't know. But in in the 1910s, the 1920s, you know, the period of time that William Branham was growing up and coming, you know, uh, into his adolescence and, and into the early stage of his ministry, Indiana was a very significant state in the United States, far more so than it is now. Uh, it was really at the, the zenith of its cultural ascendancy in those years. Um, the most prominent literary figures in the United States lived in Indiana in those years. Uh, the, the greatest poets in the United States in those years lived in Indiana. Um, everything, Indiana was, was just at the height of its, of its ascendancy in that way. The, for example, the Grand Army of the Republic, you know, the, the National Fraternal Order of Civil War Veterans was headquartered in Indiana. The American Legion, the, the National Organization, the Fraternal Order of World War I veterans was headquartered in Indiana. You had these very large national organizations that operated uh, centrally from Indiana, and it, it just gave everything that happened in Indiana a, a, a national a national publicity, you know, just, just through these organizations and other things like that going on. And even like in the artistic community, in the musical community, Indiana was at the height uh, of 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 its influence in the culture, and as William Branham is growing up in this in this era, you know, just 
talking about Indiana, being from Indiana, being influenced by Indiana, that that carried some weight just in that time. And we know on the religious front, on the religious front, there were multiple major denominations that are headquartered here in Indiana. The United Brethren is headquartered here in Indiana. The Disciples of Christ, their headquarters is here in Indiana. And we know within Pentecostalism, um, G.T. Haywood was here in Indiana. And you could almost say... Truthfully, it would be fair to say that the headquarters of Oneness Pentecostalism is in Indiana during this period of time as well. So all of this is swirling in Indiana um, as William Branham is is growing up, coming into the 20s, and kicking off his ministry, um, leading right up into these these early years that, we're, that we've talked about right here and shown that article from. Right. And Dowie had influence. Dowie, Dowie's cult actually had a— um branch of the cult that was in Indiana. Dowie's influence was nationwide, obviously, but one of the first locations that he was going to choose for Zion was actually in Indiana. Right. And Zion, Zion, Illinois is just across the border. It is just outside of Indiana. It's not that far across state lines. And so that is where Dowie set up shop and was doing all of his his stuff at and there's actually a significant part of the of the people who are in zion came from indiana and obviously they had lots of family connections back to this area so dowie also had had significant influence into indiana yeah i think it's like maybe 45 minutes north of chicago and dowie had set up a rail system rail railway that would take him from zion into his indiana branch Um, As I said, you know, this gives us context and it is definitely a side story to our, you know, our overall William Branham study of history, but it's really important. Just last night I was watching the new movie Elvis. I don't know if you've seen it, but it give it's a crazy interesting story you know william branham was strongly against elvis in the cult we weren't even allowed to name our children elvis <laughs> and when you think of elvis you think rock and roll and you think well he was just a rock and roll character so william branham was against rock and roll so that's why he didn't like elvis but it was much deeper than that if you understand the context of history Elvis was strongly in favor of integration, strongly in favor, to the extent that he was actually, he was arrested. He was, uh, you know, he got into a lot of trouble, some for his movements, but also because he was trying to break down racial barriers. Even his music was a combination of the black uh, rhythm and blues, gospel type singing with country music. And... The racists did not like Elvis, simply put. And that's out of context of this story, but it gives you an example of how context of history is so important to understanding the message, William Branham's revivals, his influence on America as a whole. Yeah, you know, e- even within Catholicism, Indiana was was ascendant in, with Catholicism in that time too, you know, uh, and and. That had a lot to do, I think, with with the Klan being so uh, uh, popular in this area as well. Uh, Notre Dame University, probably the most prominent Catholic university and school in the United States, is in Indiana. Uh, St. Minard's Arch Abbey uh, over in Jasper, John, is the only Arch Abbey in the United States, right? The, the Indiana also has some of the highest-ranking Catholic officials in the United States as well. Um, and yeah, just William Branham is growing up in this atmosphere— all of these things are, are, are playing in the culture around him. Um, 
the battle of of integration and segregation is playing on in the in the background behind him you know like you mentioned with elvis and different things and all of this is 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 impacting the ideology the beliefs and things that are developing uh in in william Branham's mind and life right there's so much going on and it's for me it's just so fascinating to understand it um, probably the best place to start is with the spiritualism in Indiana. If you remember when Roy Davis came to Indiana, um, you know, from his trail of crime and womanizing, etc., one of the first things that he did in Indiana was he held a revival claiming to be a converted spiritualist. And it's really significant to understand the importance of that claim because he was not a converted spiritualist. The whole thing was a gag basically a, or a gimmick, <clears throat> but he is appealing to the spiritualist community in Indiana and William Branham himself in his sermons talked about connecting to mediums and spiritualists and psychics, you know, throughout his ministry, he talks about this. He also is appealing to the spiritualist community, which was very, very strong in Indiana. You're right, John. And it, it's very interesting, you know, because all of these different things are going going on. And I know one spiritualist camp, John, that, that we've talked about from time to time um, is is Camp Chesterfield. And, you know, William Branham in his sermons talked a whole lot surprisingly a lot about coming into contact with psychics right. with mediums with spiritualists william branham was in his sermons told us he went to these places he visited these places um witnessed their practices himself uh and and was around others who were at who would witness those practices and that is it's really interesting and so it it's enough to make us want to pull the covers back a little bit and understand what was going on in these spiritualist camps and spiritualist places that William Branham told us that he visited. Right. I remember whenever another researcher identified Camp Chesterfield, I was I was literally shocked because William Branham tells this story about how he's, I think he tried to shift focus so people did not catch what actually happened, but he claimed that he was in some other country and this piano lifted up in the air and started playing the jingle that you hear on the Beverly Hillbillies, shaving a haircut two bits. Dun, 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 dun. And he places this so far out of context. There's no way that anybody in Africa would even understand what shaving a haircut two bits was at that time. And Camp Chesterfield that you mentioned, it was one of the six most significant spiritualist camps in the United States at a time when spiritualism itself was extremely popular in the United States. Yes. And one of their featured attractions, which was all faked, they proved letter, later that uh, the leaders admitted that they were staging some of this stuff in this camp, but they had the stage act where this Madame Mimi would come on to the stage and she would do her hocus pocus and this piano would lift up in the air and start playing dun 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 and that was one of the the main attractions at Camp Chesterfield which yeah. 
it places William Branham in the spiritualist camp. He saw this and basically revised the story to tell that when he's in the heathens in Africa, a piano is playing this jingle. Yeah, there's a lot of influence in those groups by... I guess you'd say gypsy type figures. That, right. And, you know, that that's almost what they're – I don't know that they were all gypsies themselves, but they, they're definitely impersonating gypsies. I'll put it that yeah. way with some of the stuff that goes on in those camps. And they're, you know, performing just the – even the kind of stuff you kind of see in, in the movies, you know, the stereotypical kind of stuff. You know, they've got their crystal balls and things like this going on in these camps. It's very unusual stuff. It's crazy, and it's really odd to think about because in today's world, if you were to you know, go to work and tell somebody, I was in the spiritualist camp, and this piano raised up in the air and played the Beverly Hillbillies jingle, there's not a single person in there that would believe it. Even if you believed it wholly, if you tried to sell it, and you took them to the camp, and they're, you know, they can't figure out the gimmick, they're going to know it's a gimmick in today's world. But spiritualism was so popular and there were so many people that were using basically magician's tricks to claim spiritualism that Sir Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, actually believed this stuff. And he literally stopped writing Sherlock Holmes. The reason we have so limited stories of Sherlock Holmes is because he came to America to become an evangelist for spiritualism. And he even wrote a two-volume book on the history of spiritualism. Yeah, it, it, it it's wild. Uh, and, you know, the stuff going on, like we mentioned in these camps, there's there's also things that bear a striking resemblance to practices that we later see in William Branagh's ministry during the healing revivals, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, later. But the, you might say mind reading uh, or, or things that these mediums were doing where they were discerning thoughts or offering right. personal predictions, personal prophecies to people. These kind of things were very common Um uh, you know, uh, in in these things, and it wasn't all by you know some of it was the t- typical tarot card reading type mm-hmm. things like that, but some of it was more um, esoteric in the sense that it was it 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 bore more of a resemblance to what we see in William Branham's ministry, um, where they would they would wait for a spirit to come in the room, right? Yes. And we're waiting on the spirit to come in the room. And, okay, the spirits are here now. And now we're going to ask the spirits these questions. Uh, and the spirits are going to tell us these things about people, right? Uh, and it was very uh, – you just change a couple few words in the way that they would talk about it and do it. And it's strikingly similar to some of the things that happened in William Brown's ministry. It is. It's crazy. There's another show, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend you watch, called The Mentalist. Now, we've almost seen the entire series at this point, but the mentalist was, he was a, um, you know, some carnival mind reader, just like we're talking about in this story. He was, he's doing the things that we're talking about here. All of it's fake. And he comes to the police force to become an investigator. And he uses his mind game techniques with 
the people as he's interviewing or interrogating. And he's literally using what William Branham is using in his sermons whenever, or not sermons, but faith healing lines. It's called cold reading. Whenever a person comes up to you, you say, you're from a place not far from here. And then you watch their expression. If their expression lights up, oh, he knows I'm not far from here, then William Branham knows, okay, it's in the surrounding cities. And then he goes a little bit further and tries to guess the name of the cities. Not every time it's a guess because there are other factors, other gimmicks that were used in Branham's ministries. But if you know cold reading, how it works, and you go study these faith healing lines, you're going to see very clear evidence of cold reading in his ministry. And it's interesting because it's a magician's trick. It's something that was extremely common. Harry Houdini, which is one of the world's most famous magicians of all time, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believed that Harry Houdini's magic was real, even though we know it's fake, even though Houdini himself tried to convince Doyle otherwise. They thought it was real because this is a period of time, 1900 to 1930, where spiritualism was widely believed as a religion. Yeah, Houdini was always up front that this is just tricks. Like Houdini never even tried to to claim that it was magic. He was always clear it was tricks. And whenever he would find people who were doing tricks, you might say, he... He was always intrigued to come show up and try to debunk what was going on. And he was usually quite successful at debunking what they did, and then he would repeat their tricks. And Houdini actually came to Indiana multiple times during his life. I, I, I imagine you know that, John. Yeah. And he would, when he would come to Indianapolis, um, he would do these incredible tricks in order to draw attention. Um, and one time when Houdini came to Indianapolis, he he like hangs out on a beam right like right over the most busy street in indianapolis upside down in a straight jacket thing right (laughs) and he and so all of these people basically shut down traffic watching to see what's going to happen and he he finally of course gets out of out of all of his stuff you know and that's how he shows up in indiana the first time hanging off the side of a building (laughs) in a straight jacket and uh and so he actually spends a fair amount of time in Indiana, uh, and he's intrigued by what's going on in these spiritualist camps uh, again. And from the aspect, he wants to debunk it. And again, he's he is successful quite a bit in debunking uh, the things that went on. And let me just uh, read a couple quotes for our listeners too. That way, you know, William Branham told us he went to these places, right? And so that's yeah. that's why we're that's really why we're looking at these things is because William Branham told us he went there and we just want to know well what was going on at these places William Branham said he went. So this quote is from um uh, uh it's called Debate on Tongues. It's from August 7th, 1960. William Branham says, "And so I've been in camps where the spiritualists and where the there come up a piano weighs half a ton lifted up off the floor." A guitar lay in the room, and it come through strumming music like that. A coat hang on the wall, uh, sat down on a chair beside you. Knives and forks come through, and you see them. And a wizard, a wizard lays a piece of paper down and takes a pencil on top of it. And you see the spirit come up on the stovepipe and come back down playing, shaving a hair bit, shaving a haircut two bits, and write in unknown tongues. 
And then this medium would stretch and pull himself together and, and interpret these things up and down like that and interpret those tongues and tell what was said. Uh, so you can't say speaking in tongues is the Holy Ghost. That's ultimately his conclusion there. But right. will he's describing all of these incredible <laughs> details of what he saw in these events. And let me just pick out one of those things there. So here's musical instruments playing themselves, right? Right. At the spiritualist camp. Well, one very famous message story, John, I'm sure you've heard it told many times, uh, when William Branham was was held in the meetings and the lady gets touched by the Holy Ghost and jumps up and screams and the piano keeps playing itself. Exactly. These exact same kind of things happened in the message, right? Uh, or through William Branham's ministry, instruments would play themselves and others of these things, versions of this appeared uh, in William Branham's ministry. Uh, yeah. Let me read one more, too, uh, one more quote. William Branham here said, this is 1958, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He says, spiritualism works through Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I stood in a meeting where those witches was a-working, and don't think they won't challenge you. They stood there, they throwed a table up in the air, and it floated. A guitar <laughs> was playing. Uh, stand there, and they said they wanted to put me out. And then he goes on to say that he challenged the spiritualists and accused them of witchcraft while he was at the meeting. Yeah. But it incredible stuff, John. Incredible stuff. He is basically continuing. He saw the power that Davis had when Davis came to Jeffersonville and started claiming to be a converted me medium. This is basically a, con a converted spiritualist. This is basically what started his big ministry in Indiana is the spiritualist claim. So William Branham sees this and he sees the power of it and he actually takes it nationwide. And it's really odd if you think about it. So Harry Houdini comes to Indiana. He starts his magic tricks. My favorite magician today is Chris Angel. If you've watched Chris Angel, his tricks are so incredibly good. And there used to be a television show, I think it was called Mind Freak, where he's going out right in the public and he's doing these crazy interesting things. And one of them is levitation. So here you've got Harry Houdini who comes to the spiritualist haven in America and he's doing levitation. And one of William Branham's first stage acts is a levitation act in his ministry with little, <laughs> with little David. Yeah. It's just so crazy interesting. And another interesting fact about Houdini, his mother got involved with all of this spiritualist mumbo-jumbo, which he knew it was fake because he's a magician himself. He knows how these tricks are working. And he actually dedicated his life, the latter part of his life, to exposing mediums who were faking all of this stuff because... Even the Christian communities thought this stuff was real. They thought these are people possessed by demons. And Houdini already knew this wasn't true. He's watching some of the same stage acts that some of the gimmicks that he's using in his magician act with these mediums. And so it's just, it sets up this really weird thing where William Branham goes out with a magician act that, you know, the levitating boy and who comes later to debunk William Branham is another magician who's watching the same things, James Randi. James Randi went and debunked Branham and basically exposed Branham as a fraud years ago in the book, I think it was The Faith Healers, he mentions yeah. it. 
I have that one on my shelf here. Yeah, he he basically looked into these things that were going on during the healing revival and reverse engineered the practices uh, of what was happening. Um, you know, and it's it's incredible. It, it's incredible to realize, uh, you know, that that these practices are so similar to what was happening in William Branham's meetings. And where I come from, John, our part of the message, magic and this stuff was completely taboo yes you didn't watch magic on tv you didn't go if someone had a magic wand in your hand you run the other way right like you right whatever you you completely stay away from anything like this this is absolutely taboo yeah in the message and part of that you know what on one hand why william branham is telling us about these these mediums and spiritual camps and stuff that he went to like on one side he's telling us he went to them but at the same in the next breath he's telling us and they're all of the devil and don't you ever go around them and run as fast as you can away and and i wonder now looking back just just a wonder do you think that perhaps he could have told us to never investigate or look into that stuff at all um because he didn't want us to discover the similarities to what he was doing um, I wonder if that's part of – obviously, I, I, I'm still of the belief that there are demonic forces in the world and a person yeah. should should certainly not entertain demonic demonic spirits. But I wonder though if it was more than that with William Brown. I wonder if it was he did not want us to discover that he was performing some of the same feats that was happening in these spiritualist and, and magician camps. Um, I've greatly changed my – perspective on the demonic spirits the bible mentions demonic spirits so you if you're a christian you can't deny this however in my mind we have to separate what is being described in the bible versus what is a stage trick for instance there are a large number of christians that believe that william branham actually had a spirit guide and that this quote-unquote angel was leading him, and it was a demonic spirit. There's a demon on the platform with him, basically. William Branham himself doesn't even believe this demon. He keeps changing the versions of the stage persona to the extent that at this point, there is no way that William Branham himself even believed that there was this angel on the platform. And if you take the angel away, you've taken away the spirit guide that everybody claims is the demon. So in my opinion, there are demonic forces at play in William Branham's ministry, which we'll get later, we'll get into that a lot deeper. But the ones that people see as the stage act is smoke and mirrors because William Branham himself doesn't even believe it. For, for example, if you open up the table, which is Voice of God recordings, transcripts of William Branham's sermons, the very first sermon is for me, it's the most interesting sermon. It starts out with the words, we are getting some new gadgets for recording, which implies that there were old gadgets for recording. The very first word of his entire series of transcripts is now we're starting this new thing, which means there are old recordings. And I've actually spoken to witnesses who say they have seen these old recordings that aren't available to the public. So, You've got this thing that starts out, and in the very oddly, in the first sermon, he talks about doing a magician's trick. He talks about bringing forth a person from the crowd, and he holds up a bracelet on a string, and the bracelet starts moving. And there's this weird 
blank spot in tape right when a story is getting good. So something was cut out of that. Yeah, you know, you're 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 spot on there too, because there there's evidence in William Branham's sermons and people that have witnessed these things that William Branham was more or less telling people he could control objects with his mind, um, right? You know, by the power of God or whatever, he could lift objects and move them. Um, there, there's other places on tape. You know, he would talk about how you could use your mind and you could make a light bulb come on. Right. Yes. Um, like these are the kind of things that he that he was doing, and it was more prominent in the early days of his ministry, the early days of the healing revival, that he was doing this stuff. Um, but these are again the exact same things that we read about happening in the spiritualist camps, and really the key difference here is. In the spiritualist camps, they're they're pretty straightforward. That it's not the Holy Spirit of God doing this stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's whatever whatever they're communing with out there in the ether, right? Right. Uh, but when William Branham does it, um, it is it's also this is again very unusual. It's very uncommon that William Branham would say this is the Holy Spirit doing this. With yeah. William Branham again, it was his angel. Um, it was the angel, and just like just like the spiritualists had to wait for their spirits to show up so they could, mm-hmm. William Branham had to wait for his angel to show up, and yes. it was his angel doing this and the angel doing that, and it's very, very, very unusual, and it's very, you know, when you're in the message, it don't grab you so much as unusual, but when you've come out and you've you've stepped back and you've kind of looked at it, there's nothing like this in Christianity, actually. There's no. no example of someone in the New Testament, even in the Old, someone having an angel going around with them, um, and this angel is helping them do all of this stuff, um, and they're waiting on the angel for this, and the waiting. There's nothing like that, remotely like that, in the Bible. It's it's always they're waiting on God, or they're waiting on the Holy Spirit, or. Uh, and it's and it's by the Holy Spirit or by God that these things are happening. But William Branham would say things like, "By the divine gift ministered by the angel, when he prays, like he, it's everything is is more focused to this angel or the spirit than than God, which which again is is very similar to these spiritualist practices. It's unusual. Yeah. So another aspect that we need to bring in to broadened the understanding of the culture. In today's world, this would never fly. If a, if a minister were to come up to a church, any church, and hold a bracelet on a string and say, watch, I can move the bracelet, you're going to have five-year-old kids in today's world that say, mom, he's just doing this magic trick, and I can do it too, look. Yeah. Yeah. But in I that, see the string. <laughs> I see the string, right? You know, there, It would never fly. It would never stick. And then you would have a bunch of ministers rising up to you know, the, the victims in this or the people who believe it. So you'd have people explaining how this works, and then it would just fall apart. But back in that day, you know, with all of this spiritualist craze, it stuck. And let's take this to a much broader scale. Because what we see, what we're describing here is not just related to William Branham's ministry. This was one of the catalysts, the spiritualist mumbo-jumbo was one of the main catalysts that created the Latter Rain movement, which splintered into countless other movements, cults, sects of Pentecostalism, 
the you had the you know the Kansas City prophets you had the word of faith movement the charismatic movement the um, new apostolic reformation movement you had all of these movements that they all claim their origin was basically the latter rain movement and they associate William Branham with their ministry because Branham is historically credited as being a catalyst for latter rain because yeah. in later years William Branham tried to separate himself and the cult historians have successfully isolated Branham from the latter rain and limited the amount of involvement that actually happened in the minds of all historians. William Branham was not just a catalyst. I'm going to read a quote from Scott Hawes, the son of Raymond Hawes, who was in Sharon, either Sharon Orphanage or basically in the latter rain early origins of the Lateran sect. And he said, one of Branham's teachings was the ability to use the spirit of God to make things move on their own accord. My dad related to me that he had tried this just once and said that things in the room had moved on their own, but the air became cold, dark, and heavy. It scared him and he never tried it again. So what he's describing here you would actually see if you went to this Madame Mimi Camp Chesterfield, he's describing a spiritualist event. Raymond Hawes apparently believed this in the same way that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle believed this. They believed the gimmicks that were going on. And they believed that William Branham was like the sorcerer. He had the power to, if you watch the Harry Potter's movies and you watch the sorcerer go into the room and all of the things start floating, what he's describing is sorcery. He's not describing Christianity at all. But because the spiritualist movement was so successful and so widespread at the time that the Latter Rain movement was spreading, they could use what literally what the Bible condemns and stoned people to death for doing. They called it Christianity and then sold it as latter rain. Yeah. It, it, it's something else. And you're, you're, you're exactly right with, with latter rain. You know, we, we have been deep diving into latter rain and I'm looking forward to when we finally get to, to do an episode or two on that. And, you know the the tentacles of latter rain are are i think somewhat different than certainly what i understood before i started looking into it because obviously you do have what happened up in north battleford right you've got the uh, the Houghton brothers and that where it started but really the it seems like the central hubs for spreading it <clears throat> actually come down to the united states it's a church in chicago and a church in detroit yes which are key players in actually spreading the ideas that came out of there. And William Branham uh, was deeply connected to those two churches. Um, people in William Branham's orbit were, were in those churches a lot and were also up at the Sharon Orphanage prophesying things about William Branham <laughs> at the Sharon Orphanage, uh, you know, at the time. And so William Branham was, was, he was a catalyst, but he was more than a catalyst. Yes. He was a, a significant influence into them. And then there was counter influence too. They in turn influenced William Branham. Right. Um, and, and beliefs that would then become the message. And yes, there's a whole smattering, a splintering of groups that came out of that. And some of these practices, um, that came out of it are, 
what we what today you might refer to as hyper charismaticism uh hyper charismatic yes. things uh were introduced through this um an over reliance on what you would call the gifts of the spirit an 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 over emphasis on these supernatural miraculous things um even beyond far above and beyond what the early pentecostal movement placed on these things in significance uh and so it 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 took something that was in a nascent form in the Pentecostal movement, and it, it poured gas on that fire and turned it into a form of hyper-charismaticism. Yeah. Yes. So picture these spiritualist camps. You've got the floating piano off to the side. You've got the levitation off to the other side. And then you've got the medium. In this case, in William Branham's case, he met apparently Madame Mimi, but, you know, they had different ones, men and women. And the medium comes, and when we think of spiritualism, we think of a lady sitting in this weird robe, and there's this crystal ball, and she's peering into it. But it wasn't just that. They were basically, they wanted you to believe that they were like sorcerers. So they'd hold their hand out, and they would do things. They actually had what William Branham called discernment. They It was called cold reading, and they would come talk to people, and they would do the hand thing. And again, watch Mentalist. You'll see that there are subtle hypnosis techniques that can be used on people if you studied. Hypnosis isn't just waving a watch on a string and then causing people to act like chickens. You can very, very limited um, hypnotize people just with your speech to for a brief period of time so that they say more than they should or they think a different way. There are techniques that these mediums use, and a lot of times it was distracting focus with the hand. They were, you know. As, as they're pulsing the hand, the person starts focusing on the hand. They're not thinking very much about, they're not critically thinking about what the person is saying. And the hand was a big part of William Branham's ministry. He yeah. actually, he claimed that he could heal people. He could detect the diseases by vibrating hands. And again, in today's world, this isn't going to fly. If <laughs> most, I would say that probably 90% of the people in William Branham's cult of personality have no idea that he claimed his hand could vibrate and change colors. If they, if they knew this, I think most of them would actually leave because they would say, no, this is Harry Potter mumbo jumbo. This is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> And, and again, there's there is nothing like that. There is zero precedent for that in Christianity or the Bible. There is nothing at all like that where where somebody in the Bible, in the Scripture, somebody that is of God goes and lays their hands on people and discerns their illnesses by a reaction yeah. that they then sense in their own body on their all look, you know, the looking at their own wrist. And and you're you're exactly right, John. I mean, our now our part of the message, at least our pastor told us about this, because there are people in our church who claim to be eyewitnesses to this manifestation. And I don't doubt that. I don't know necessarily how he did it, or it could well have been something spiritual. I don't. I'm still on the fence as to trying to understand just exactly what was happening here. But there would be people um, who would. I'll, I'll just share one one case in point story that that I know. This man went to William Branham's house. His wife was sick, um, and William Branham 
comes into the living room to sit and pray for them. And I'll just give the story and compare this to, to the things we've been talking about with, with the spiritualism. And William Branham comes in and he, he sits down and he talks to them for a while. And after he talks to him for a while, he says, now, I've been talking to you for a while because I, I need to contact your spirit, right? Mm-hmm. I, I've got I've to contact your spirit in order to be able to help you, right? And... And, and then he goes on and I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for that angel to come, right? And so he's A, I gotta contact your spirit. B, I'm waiting on this angel spirit to come help me. And then he takes his watch off and he sits it off to the side. He goes, now I can't wear my watch while I do this because, um, this gift destroys my watches. If the watch is on my wrist while I do this, this gift is gonna cause the hands to blow off my watch. Uh, and, and, <laughs> And he's on tape. Let me let me maybe read a quote of him saying something like this. Um, this is from uh, It Is I from 1960. He, William Branham says, I can't wear a wristwatch. I had a $200 long irons give to me down here. It <laughs> fell apart on the pulpit when he used his gift. And then someone else gave me a $300 Volcane Credit cricket watch up over here. And in the meeting the other night, the same thing. Uh, it falls off and flew off me, loose from my hand when I used the gift. And the and the stem come right out of it. So he he would say these things that when he would operate his gift, it would cause mechanical things around him to fall apart and blow up, basically. Right. So he takes his wristwatch off with this lady. He puts it on the side, and then he puts his hand on her. And the man says he watched his wrist while he did this. And and William Brandon put his hand on him. And when he did, certain blotches or or um, shapes and colors would appear on 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 the wrist of his hand, and then by these things he could tell what was wrong with the person. Yes. And again, you think nothing like this in the Bible, and and if this is very, I'll say this is creepy, John. This is creepy <laughs> now that we're out looking back. What in the world is what in the world is this, right? Yeah. And 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 so. God, I guess, or whatever it was, would cause William Branham to have a negative reaction in his body when he would touch somebody with with this with whatever, and then he would tell them whether you're healed or not based on how these blotches on his arm, hives or whatever, came or went um, after he had prayed for them. It's very <laughs> it's, very unusual. It's so odd, man. It's it's like if you would take. I don't know, some Stephen King movie, some some weird horror movie where this guy is contacting the evil spirits and mix it with friends and turn it into a comedy. That's <laughs> that's almost what this is like. The two hundred dollar watch. I've I, I've actually come to the conclusion that I'm no longer of the opinion that there's something evil going on. This is all stage act. Again, watch the mentalist, you'll get some of this, but picture just picture the from a logic perspective. I'm a very poor man. I'm a evangelist who never takes an offering. These are things that William Branham claimed. Uh, there have been times that I could not scrape two pennies together because I never take an offering. And every time I discern your disease, it breaks my watch. So what does he do? I'm not going to go buy some, you know, cheap watch that because it's going to break I can you know I'm going to buy these little $10 watches because they're going to break anyway he goes and buys a $200 watch now keep in mind in 1946 $200 was the equivalent of about $3000 today so he's literally telling these poor people I never take an offering I have no money but I bought this $3000 watch <laughs> none of it makes any sense 
and praying for you breaks my watch, so I might need a new one. <laughs> it's so crazy. You know, I have I've actually met people, Christian men and women, who knew things that I have no way how they no way to understand how they knew. They knew things that they should not have known. They've told me one of one person told me that he had spiritual dreams and he dreamed something and sure enough it wasn't, you know, the dream was obviously symbolism or whatever. So it wasn't like it was a literal dream and he saw this dream of witnessing the future. But there were elements of the dream that he started to understand and piece together and he actually told me something before it happened. I've met people who had some gift that I can't explain. But in every case that I've met a person who has something like this or in every case that I've read in the Bible, it is specific to the situation. In other words, his dream was something, I don't want to give the details because it's very personal, but his dream was something that was important for the person to know at the time. And that person made a really good decision because they were informed through this Christian person who had this gift, if it was a gift. That, I understand, I believe, I think is acceptable. In William Branham's case, the gift was always three things. I know your name. I know your address. I know what's wrong with you. And again, I know your name, address, what's wrong with you. And sometimes, you know, people in the cult will say, well, sometimes he knew the name and address and what was wrong. Yes, they wrote it on their card, but sometimes he did not look at the card. Well, look at the cold reading and look at the other gimmicks used. He'll, he'll peer across an audience and say, you in the purple dress, you have X, Y, and Z. You in the red hat, you have X, Y, and Z. You in the scarlet handkerchief bandana in your hair, you have, he's using color association. He's using location association. He's got his own son who's collecting prayer cards and sneaking up to the platform while he's praying and slipping notes to William Branham. I mean, all of this is going on, and people like James Randi or Harry Houdini, who does the same kind of things, they have huge questions about this because here's a man doing what I do in my fake stage act. William Branham is doing these things. So my opinion has changed significantly. I, I do believe that there are evil forces in this world. I do not believe that in the way in which we thought this was an evil spirit, I don't think is. Now, I think this evil force could be using William Branham to create a higher form of evil through other ministries. I can actually see this happening, but I do not believe that there was a demon who was on the platform with him and telling him secrets because we know how he knows many of these secrets. Yeah. You know, there there's, there's so much to look at there. And I know we're going to do an episode here before very much longer where we actually uh, examine specific cases through William Branham's ministry of, of things that happened and, and start looking at the actual facts and evidence behind some of that. I'm looking forward to getting into that. Uh, but you're, you're exactly right, John. With, with William Branham, you know, it, it seems to me at this point that it's a mix. Um, there are things that I can definitely see were a scam, things where 
uh, like you might say, I can see the strings, right? We can see the yeah. string uh, in in a certain way. You know, I'll use that proverbially. We can see proverbially, <laughs> we can see the string attached, right? Yeah. We know how it's <laughs> happening. Um, but then there's other things that I still don't quite know how to explain, uh, except to say there had to be something going on. Um, perhaps in a supernatural way that I, I still don't have an understanding of. Um, but that in itself doesn't actually prove anything, right? No. You know, even if even if there was some supernatural manifestation that was happening in these events and in these meetings, that itself is not actually a vindication of somebody, right? As, uh, from a biblical standard, because that's the whole thing. That's what all of this mattered in the message. This is our vindication that William Branham is whatever label we want to slap on him because there was healings and there was miracles and there was the face of jesus in the sky and there was this and there was that mm -hmm. and the piano did play itself and whatever other thing you want to we would say these things are how we know william branham was this great amazing something but really putting on my preacher hat for a second <laughs> biblically there's no that's not actually a basis to say any of that because you know when we go through the bible the devil and evil forces are capable of counterfeiting all of that. The devil could give people dreams he did in the Bible. The devil can teleport people. We can see that in the Bible in a sense. The devil can read minds and give prophecies and speak in tongues. We see all of that in the Bible. The devil can even quote the Bible and preach, right? There's, there's nothing, there's really nothing that William Branham did that cannot be counterfeited by an evil spirit. Um, and, you know, when you, Say otherwise, you're true. You're really just kind of being unfaithful to Scripture. But yeah, I, I just don't see any. It's not actually the proof that we thought it was when we was in the message of anything. Yeah, one way or other, whether it was genuine or whether it was a gimmick. And I'm of the opinion. I certainly see a lot of it now was was indeed just gimmicks. I see the strings attached. Yeah. So Charles, for me, it's this simple. If I am a baseball player and I tell you that I can throw a ball so fast that I will get a strike every time, every time I throw it, it's going to go across the plate and nobody can hit it. What would you expect me to be able to do? I would expect you to always be able to throw a strike, right? You should never right. be able to hit the ball. Absolutely. If I'm a painter and I tell you that... I can paint a house, and without any tape at all, I can paint a straight line around every window, every door. I can paint just to perfection with my hand. What would you expect me to do? I, I expect you to demonstrate your talent by performing what you've told me you can do. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's that simple. For me, if I could tell you I can do this thing, I should be able to do it. Yet William Branham tells people that he he has this prophetic gift and don't look at the gift don't look at the prophecies to see if they're correct look at this other thing you know what i'm saying yeah you know and and and, and whenever it failed and it failed a lot that's when you know our excuse well he's just a man He's just a man at this moment, you know. You just have yeah. to excuse him. He's a he's a fallible man right now. But now over here, this is the voice of God. You better listen, <laughs> right? And it the way the way the message sets this stuff up, will there is an out? No matter what William Branham does, he cannot do wrong, right? That that's the way the me William Branham cannot do wrong in the message. Everything that's good is of God, and everything if he misses, well, he's just a man. 
He's just, uh, you know, you can't use that to do anything or gauge anything. And where we would come from, all that was just the Spirit of God trying to, uh, you know, lead astray the unbelievers, right? Like, it's everything bad that happened. Um, look the other way. <laughs> yeah, the pain. So, uh, quick, quick caveat. So, in our part of the message, sports was of the devil. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> so William Branham claimed to be a prophet uh-huh. and he convinced his entire cult of personality his entire even, even to this day they believe that these gimmicks that these mysticism spiritualism uh, clairvoyancy um, necromancy communicating with the dead they believe that all of this hocus pocus was vindication for a prophet and that the prophecies themselves, it doesn't matter if the prophecies fail because it doesn't matter if he failed, he can talk to the dead. It doesn't matter if he failed, he can move a bracelet. It doesn't matter if he failed because he can make a boy levitate, whatever it is. He actually, this is called in the magician's world, sleight of hand. I can, I'm going to distract you from this thing and give you this other thing so you can focus on it. If you really think about it, his entire prophetic ministry was nothing but a magician's sleight of hand. I'm going to give you all of these signs, wonders, hocus pocus, and don't check the prophecies to see if they're true or not. Because if you look at what happened, to this day, you've got men who aren't even in his cult of personality who say that his prophecies are real because sleight of hand, they've never checked to see, did they actually happen? And did he actually predict them before they happened? Yeah. You know, one, one thing that is, is just, you, you, you touched on there is speaking to the dead. Um, and William Branham did speak to the dead quite a bit. Claim that he did. Too. Yeah. Claim that he did. Right. And, you know, there's instances of it. For example, he claimed to speak to his 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 dead daughter. Remember uh, that experience, Sharon Rose, who had died in the flood. He claimed to meet her and speak to her. Uh, there's times that he talked about that he went to hell uh, and and experienced and and saw and spoke to spirits there. There's times he claimed he went to heaven and he saw and spoke to the dead the spirits of the dead his dead converts in heaven. Um, so communicating with the dead is something that William Branham actually did a fair amount of in his ministry, which again is 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 entirely no precedent for that in Christianity whatsoever, but there is within spiritualism and there is within within things in the Bible that are connected to uh evil, right? Uh, witches yeah. in the Bible could conjure and speak to the dead, but you don't see anything like that in the practices of Christianity or in the practices that are endorsed by God in the Bible. No, and in fact, people who pretended to do this, or if they could even, you know, if it was real in the Bible days, I, I still have my opinion that there were people claiming to do it and couldn't actually do it, but they were doing stage tricks and they were distracting God's people. And there are actually passages that in the Old Covenant, they stoned them to death for doing for it was called necromancy, you know, communication with the dead. William Branham, there's a, I can't remember the guy's name. I wish I could, but there was a failed healing. William Branham claimed that some person was healed. The person was not healed and the family was distraught. This person died and William Branham says that he went and spoke with this person after their death. 
spoke to them in the realms of the underworld and said, no, they're happier here and we want to stay here. And so that was his solace to the family, his comforting statement to the family, so that they wouldn't look at him as a fraud. Yeah, and I, I've heard similar things of, you know, William Branham did a lot of private interviews, and you, you probably are aware of that, where, and these things, I look back now, these are very spooky. What were these private interviews? Um, oh, I know. So these, pri- these private interviews, um, basically people would come to him to have a personal prophetic encounter. And so he would schedule them. They'd be scheduled. They'd come for an appointment, basically, like a... I, I'm I, in my mind. What I'm comparing this to is, you know, you're you're going to, you know, Madame Cleo, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. And and so you're going. You got your appointment. You're going into the room. And William Branham don't have a crystal ball, but but something is happening here where he is, he is speaking into their life. He is yes. telling them the future, what's going to happen to them, um, giving them personal guidance, um, using these gifts that he's supposed to have in his life. And they're very similar, right? Any almost anybody I've talked to about these things, these are they sound very similar to people going to a psychic or to a medium. Really, they they sound like the exact same kind of thing. And again, I transfer that over. I don't see anything like that in scripture or in Bible in these practices that William Branham was doing. But he he was he was doing these things with vast numbers of people. Um, yeah. And unusual things came out of it, like you said, John, where he would even seem to be communing with the dead during these events. Yes. I've actually spoken with people who were in these private interviews, and I've studied the private interviews extensively. I don't know if you know this or not. William Branham held private interviews with the members of People's Temple when he and Jones were working together. And again, this is during a time when spiritualism is highly fascinating by Many members of Christianity were curious about it during the early, you know, 1900 to 1930. Well, then after that, a lot of that remained in the state of Indiana because Indiana was one of the hot spots for spiritualism. So William Branham is basically holding these private interviews, and it is actually anti-biblical. The Bible, there's many passages about fortune-telling, about how evil fortune-telling was. And fortune-telling is basically wanting to know your own future. And people who claim that they give you your own future is fortune-telling. That's a fortune-teller. And William Branham is basically giving a blanket, wide-open invitation to any people who want to know their fortune— Come to a private interview, and I'll tell you more about what's going to happen in your life. That was his fortune telling. And people say, no, this is a divine gift from God. Well, maybe, but it's not the Christian God, because the Christian God says this is the lowest, purest form of evil that he's doing, and he's doing it in these ministries. He does this to people's temple, and they go die in Jonestown. It's when you think about it, it is, if it were real, which I do not believe it was, if it were real, this is the most scary thing for Christianity that is has been since, you know, since the days of Jesus Christ. This is the worst form of evil, if it were real, because it is so anti-biblical, but he claimed it was Christian. Yeah, 
you know, I, I know lots and lots and lots of people who went into these private interviews with William Branham, and many of them came out with private prophecies, private things. And one that really jumps out to me right now, John, you know, after what you said, there's a certain family I know, they went into private interview with William Branham, and th there's, there's certain troubles going on, and William Branham tells them in this interview, everything is okay, everything is going to be okay, it's all going to be okay, you know, like he's insistent that everything's going to be and then shortly thereafter, their son commits suicide, right? Mm. Uh, and and the whole thing was kind of targeted around that. And there are these really ugly things that happened coming out of these interviews, right? Like that, um, that stories that have been handed down to us. And it wasn't okay. No. <laughs> it wasn't okay. And it wasn't going to be okay, right? But they, they'll they hold on to that, you know, as though William Branham had some special insight. When when the truth is, you know, if, if William Branham saw what was going to happen, why didn't he why didn't he say, hey, uh, you need to probably get rid of those guns in your house or something like that, right? It wasn't good. It was not no. good things that came out of these. There's a lot of bad that came out of these private interviews um, that, 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 that I could relate. There was a guy that was in a wheelchair, and William Branham told him that one day he would say the right thing and rise out of the wheelchair. That was his healing. I mean, it wasn't that God's going to heal him and he's going to raise up and God's going to give him this gift of healing. It was that the man would say something. In other words, it's almost like an incantation. One day you'll say the right thing and you'll stand up out of that wheelchair. Well, he actually died a cripple. He died you know, the, his very last day on earth was when he came out of the wheelchair into the deathbed. I mean, it was literally that he never ended up saying the right thing. So in his case, this fortune telling turned out to be completely false. And yet there are several people that I know who knew this man who kept looking for him to say the right thing. Yeah. Even the fortune telling is wrong. I mean, it's even incorrect. And people, because of this, I don't know what you even call it. It's like a conversion to spiritualism. Yeah. They, they've been converted to this other gospel that's not even close to Christianity. And even the elements of the gospel itself that William Branham introduced has turned out to be false. And they still will continue to serve William Branham as their master. You know, there, there's another, you know, on along that same line, there's another couple I know who had went to a private interview. These would be actually in-laws of William Branham. And William Branham gave them a, um, a prophecy, basically, of something that was going to happen in the future. And they lived the rest of their life in anticipation and expectation of this thing happening. And they built their entire life around, um being able to realize this prophecy that William Branham gave them. And they they lived their whole life. They made incredible sacrifices, in, incredible things, life-changing things that could never be undone for the sake of this prophecy that William Branham gave them. And now they're both dead today. They went to their graves. And, you know, it's, it's actually when they get on their deathbeds that they realize that William Branham lied to them. And... So you think of that, these things that William Branham did, they had impact on these people for their entire lives, right? And then at the end of their life, and I've heard story after story after story of thing like this happening, on their deathbed, 
they realize William Branham lied to me, deceived me, and have a total collapse of faith uh, yeah. on their deathbed. And all because of these things that William Branham said and did in these private interviews. And it's it's startling, surprising, and it's very sad. It's incredibly sad, you know, and I know several too, you know, I, both of us, I think, can go on for the next two hours and talk about these private interviews, but um, for sake of time, you know, I'm not a preacher. I never claim to be, nor do I ever really want to be, but let's say, Charles, that let's say that this was real. I no longer believe it was. I have seen too many examples of faking it and in my opinion, if you have a real gift and you can do a thing, whether it's of God or not, you're not going to do fake things to make people think that you can do the thing. Let's say that this is real. Let's say that these things William Branham is doing is real. Let's say that he actually did have this spirit guide on the platform and the spirit guide was magically diagnosing the name, address, disease, name, address, disease, over and over and over again in these revivals. Let's say it was real. What does the Bible say about this kind of thing? Is this what you look for to see if a man is a man of God? Is this what you look for to see if the man is a prophet? Is this what you look for to make sure that you're following Jesus and not the Antichrist? What does the Bible say about this? Well, if you go to Matthew chapter 24, this is actually what Jesus says to beware of. Um, it's actually uh, a negative sign in a lot of ways. Jesus said uh, uh, that the false anointed ones would come and be able to do such signs and wonders and miracles that it would deceive even the elect if it were possible. Signs, wonders, miracles um, are just as much a sign of the false anointed ones as it would be a sign of the true anointed one. So it's that itself is not something you can use to discern the good from the bad, because according to Jesus Christ himself, both sides of the aisle uh, will be able to perform miracles and feats of that nature. So that itself is not. Um, ultimately, as a, as a minister, I, I come back to um, what the Apostle Paul would say as the way to discern uh, the true from the bad. If they preach another gospel. If they are not preaching Jesus Christ, if they're preaching something contrary to apostolic teaching from the Bible, right? Um, that is the ultimate discerner of, of, of what they are. And that, again, is where we run into the issues with William Branham. Because as we said, these practices we see of his, many of them have no precedent in the Bible. There are many things that he preached and taught that, sadly, you know, when we step back, we realize have actually departed from the true Christian gospel uh, and into something pseudo-Christian or entirely something outside of the Bible. And so that ultimately is how, how I would grade it. Now, I know there's others who would go back to the prophecy or rather the instructions in Deuteronomy uh, you know, if a prophet says, do such a thing and it doesn't come to pass, then don't be afraid of them. Uh, so if there's, a, if there's any examples of failed prophecies, that's another way to discount a prophet. And so I think by either of those methods, um, we can in many ways discount, uh, William Branham, uh, because sadly we can see failures in his prophecies, failures in his teachings, um, and, 
non-Christian practices in his ministry. I'm actually sad to see this episode close, Charles. This, For me, we're starting to get into the really fun stuff when we're talking about history and culture and lifestyles, and it's just one of many side stories that we're going to have as we go through this podcast. And uh, again, I just, I'm so fascinated by this. I think I talk for hours and hours, but in order for the listeners not to get tired of us talking, I think we'll bring this to a close and we'll start uh, preparing for next week. So if you've enjoyed our show and you want more information, you can check us out on the web. You can find us at william-branham.org and christiangospelchurch.org. For an overview of the historical research of William Branham and the healing revivals, read Preacher Behind the White Hoods, a critical examination of William Branham and his message, available on Amazon, Kindle, and Audible. Join us again next week. We've got a great episode coming. 